This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome to America's Voice for Energy. I'm Marita Noon, and for our July 16th edition of our show, we're going to be talking about my column entitled, The Other Nuclear Country. Now, realize Iran has been in the news nonstop, especially for the past 18 days, discussing their so-called nuclear deal. But while we've been talking about Iran, nobody much has focused on Japan and what's been going on in Japan. Now, admittedly, we're kind of talking about two different nuclear situations, although Iran claims that they want to enrich uranium for nuclear energy, for nuclear power. And while nuclear power sort of got a bad rap post-Fukushima in March 2011, Japan has made a decision to reboot its nuclear program and move back up to roughly 20% of their energy needs being met by nuclear power, which is about 10% less than their pre-Fukushima levels. And on Friday, July 10, Japan finish loading the fuel into the first reactor that they expect to start up in roughly 10 days after inspections take place and uh, begin commercial transmission of electricity uh, in, in September. And so this is a process that they're going through. But the key issue to me, why I chose to write on the Japan situation, besides the fact that it was timely, is the reason that Japan chose to go back to nuclear power after shutting down all of their nuclear generating capacity is the economic impact. Japan found that having to import fossil fuels because they have few natural resources was raising their costs, hurting their economy, hurting manufacturing, and hurting industry. So I see that there are lessons there that the United States can learn from Japan. So we're going to talk about to a variety of experts on today's edition of America's Voice for Energy. We're going to talk specifically about nuclear power and uh, its impact on the economy in the United States. And so I'm delighted to have with me today as our first guest, Jay Lair, who is the science director for the Heartland Institute. Now, you may not know, I am considered a policy advisor for the Heartland Institute. And on their blog... I do know that, Marita. I know you do, Jay, but our listeners may not know that. Our listeners may not know, but I know you do, yes. And Heartland publishes most everything I write on their website, but uh, I don't have the esteemed title of anything like science director or anything. I'm just a lowly policy advisor. So, Jay, I'm excited to have you with us. And when I sent out my column on Monday, as I do every Monday, to a, a, a list, a big list of primarily online commentary sites, you quickly, Jay, sent me a note back saying, great column, and told me that you had done, post-Fukushima, you had done a lot of media interviews talking about the, the, the potential danger or non-danger, as the case may be. And I quickly sent you an email back saying, will you be on my show, America's Voice for Energy? So thanks for joining me today, and tell us about your experience uh, post-Fukushima. Well, I uh, was contacted by uh, CNN TV precisely 60 minutes after the earthquake and tsunami 
because I was the first expert they could find on nuclear energy. They evidently uh, went to uh, Google or Amazon, and they found that I had a brand-new book coming out, uh, an encyclopedia of nuclear power, and uh, 60 minutes after the quake, uh, they asked me if I could come to their studio, which was about an hour away, and I did. And I sat in front of the TV, and they said, what's going to be the impact of the earthquake, the tsunami, on the Fukushima uh, 4 nuclear power plant? I said, well, I anticipated that all four plants would ultimately be destroyed and uh, be taken down. Uh, I was a little worried uh, about the people in the uh, working in the plant, but I suspected they were uh, properly protected. But I could tell them that there could not be enough radiation escaping from this plant and lasting long enough over anybody outside of the plant to uh, create any radiation illness and certainly no death. Uh, well, they were in a state of shock. How could I say this? Well, it's kind of a joke. Uh, nuclear power is not rocket science. It's really fairly simple arithmetic in determining what the impact of radiation is on the human body. You need a certain amount of radiation and it has to last uh, in your environment uh, long enough. This was absolutely impossible with the winds of Fukushima. Well, this led to 23 more network television shows where they matched me up with an anti-nuke person that would say I was crazy, I was uh, insane. There was no possibility of my even being wrong. And, of course, years later, not one human being got sick from nuclear radiation. Uh, nobody uh, died. Uh, a couple thousand people died prematurely because they moved them out of their homes. Old people, uh, ill people, they moved them miles away into uh, lean-tos or what have you without their meds. Uh, it was a total disaster. Uh, and, and in fact, the plants in Nukushima were what we call uh, Evolution 1. They were the most antiquated uh, nuclear power plants uh, going back into the 50s, and uh, yet they survived uh, twice the horrendous uh, uh, situation that they were built for. In fact, if anything, Fukushima proved the safety of nuclear energy because plants that were not built to withstand this kind of a situation uh, withstood it very well, and it was only because the diesel uh, generators that uh, pumped the water, the cooling water, into the plant uh, were overwhelmed by the tsunami, and the, the cooling stopped, and that created the problem. And then Japan went and shut down all their uh, their plants. It was insane, absolutely insane. The safety under the worst situation uh, was 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 used to say nuclear was not safe, and they shut down their plant and shot themselves uh, in the foot clearly. And their uh, their energy costs have gone up and skyrocketed. Now, three years later, uh, almost four years later, I guess they have finally uh, come to their senses and they're going back to nuclear. But they were 30% nuclear. They're only wanting to go back to 20%. I have no clue why. I guess that's to appease the, the public uh, by telling them they're not going as, uh, as much as they, they should. Nuclear power is the safest form of energy uh, in the world. I mean, less people. Basically, uh, the situation in Russia was a plant that couldn't have been built in the free world. It was a disaster. People think thousands died. Actually, only 49 died primarily in the fire or radiation that were right there at the plant. Uh, but all over the world, there, there are 450 uh, commercial power plants around the world. Nobody's ever died in one. Only four people died in a research power plant in 1976 in, uh, in Idaho. Uh, however, 
in the United States, nuclear is not uh, really competitive any long, longer because we're so rich in gas and oil. And uh, the, the safety that, has to, that, that the government requires to be built into a plant that's unnecessary has driven the cost way up. But nuclear power is going to uh, uh, continue to grow around the world. Uh, Russia, China, uh, all over the world, people are smart enough to keep building nuclear power. Yes, I cited in my column the number of new plants being built, for example, in China, and Russia's doubling their nuclear capacity and so forth. But I want to throw in one little comment. Um, when you were talking about being on, on all the television shows post-Fukushima and, and the concern about radiation, one thing you probably don't know about me, Jay, is that I cut my teeth in this energy world, which I uh, accepted the job that I have today as executive director of the Citizens Alliance for Responsible Energy uh, eight and a half years ago now. And at the time, I knew nothing about energy. But I cut my teeth, literally, fighting for uranium mining in New Mexico. And I rec remember the very first hearing, government hearing that I'd ever been to in my entire life, was one for uh, uh, fighting to open up uranium mining in Grants, New Mexico. And one of the antis who was there at the hearing, I remember them saying, pounding the table and saying, there is no acceptable amount of radiation. Now, I was new to all this at the time, but I reached out to some experts on radiation, and I said, am I correct? I mean, what I see is that we get radiation from the sun, don't we? We get radiation from our granite countertops, don't we? But yet the, the line was, there is no acceptable amount of radiation. Well, Marina, it's almost the opposite, uh, because, uh, and I've been to the, I've been to the mining grants in uh, New Mexico uh, years ago, and I've been involved in uh, Fukushima and, uh, I mean, Nagasaki and Hiroshima when we dropped the atom bombs. And when we studied the impact of radiation where we dropped an uh, atomic bomb and, and, and thousands of people died, we found that as you moved away uh, from where the, the bomb was dropped and as the radiation declined and you got to an outer ring uh, around these cities where people experienced some radiation but had no impact, uh, health impacts, we found that actually uh, it, things turn around and a little bit of radiation uh, actually decreases your uh, your chances of getting cancer. And they know that uh, all over Japan, that people lived in the outer ring, small amount of radiation, uh, were actually have lower cancer rates than the rest of the population. Uh, it's now a study called hormesis, which essentially means a reverse effect. So not only was the uh, were the politicians that made it, pounded the table and made those statements wrong about uh, small amounts of radiation. Uh, it's upside down uh, wrong. But it's, it's that attitude uh, that has held nuclear power back in this country, although uh, we, we've been up to 19% of our power in nuclear, but we never get to build any new plants as a result of that attitude. Now we're not building, uh, well, we have a couple uh, being constructed in South Carolina and Georgia. They may or may not ever be completed, but I don't anticipate that they'll be uh, for uh, at least another 20 years because we are truly awash in gas and, gas and oil, and uh, they, uh, they are definitely always going to be cheaper uh, than nuclear. I, I think our nuclear plants cost about three times more than they should if we built them sensibly, sensibly and didn't build in uh, all this safety stuff that's absolutely uh, redundant and, and unnecessary.
Yeah, we've just got about a minute left. Speaking of safety and, and all that, what do you think about China's uh, kind of mass-producing nuclear power plants? Well, I think they're getting an awful lot of good uh, uh, information and expertise from outside. They've become pretty good about it. I'm not the least bit worried. I think they'll, uh, they'll build good plants uh, at a reasonable cost. And, uh, of course, they're, they'll still build a, a new coal plant uh, every week, and they'll put up a few... Uh, windmills to make it look like they're green, all of that is a political uh, facade, but I'm not, uh, I think they'll do a good job. We, there's so much information around now uh, in nuclear, and I'm, I'm sure they're, uh, they're getting the best advice. Yeah, and one thing, another thing before we end I want to point out that you mentioned is we've got so much oil and natural gas in America, you don't think another nuke plant will be built, but for Japan, they don't have those resources. And so I, I just want to point out kind of the economics and the, the idea that one size fits all does not work. You need to look at each and each individual location and what's, what's the best for, for that country. And for Japan, nuclear is certainly the way to go. There is no question. They're the only country that makes electricity out of oil, which is really ridiculous. We, we don't use essentially any oil in our power plants. So there's no question that nuclear is the best way for Japan, and it's nice to see that they're uh, screwing their head uh, back on straight and uh, going back to nuclear. Well, I appreciate your insights, Jay, and your expertise on the topic. Before we end, what was the name of your book that, on nuclear? Uh, the Encyclopedia of Nuclear Energy. It came out uh, in 2011. Uh, it's a series on uh, energy from uh, uh, John Wiley and Sons. In fact, the uh, newest book in the series will be out in the fall on renewable energy and oil and uh, shale gas. Uh, we've gone through everything to do with renewable energy from a physics standpoint, and, of course, they're showing that they, they for physical reasons, uh, the physics of the universe, they cannot be competitive uh, with fossil fuel. And then we go into uh, shale gas and uh, prove that it's, uh, it truly is the greatest thing since sliced bread. Great. Thank you, Jay Lair. We're way over time for our break, but I appreciate you joining us today, Science Director from the Heartland Institute. Thanks for joining us on America's Voice for Energy. My name is Dr. Jeff Terry from Mobile, Alabama. I love taking care of my patients and not computers. That is why I need your help. On October 1st, the government will mandate that I implement the new ICD-10 coding system, and if not able to do so, then I will be put out of business and my patients will have to find a new physician. Please call and write your congressmen and senators today and tell them no to ICD-10. Tell them physicians need a grace period in order to concentrate on you, the patient, and not the computer. The United States Justice Foundation, since 1979, has been dedicated to instructing, informing, and educating the public on legal issues confronting America. That means you and me. When necessary, this nonprofit organization has had to litigate to present the constitutional view. Since 1980, USJF has submitted testimony to the U.S. Senate on all but one U.S. Supreme Court nominee. Learn more about USJF by visiting their website at www.usjf.net. Support this nonprofit as it defends our rights, our liberty, and our Constitution. You're listening to America's WebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. 
Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. Today we're talking on the face about Japan's nuclear restart and their decision to go back to nuclear power because of the harsh impact more expensive energy has had on their economy. And that's kind of the underpinning of my column for this week. But at the very end of my column, I have kind of a little... But if you're not paying close attention, you might think there's a throwaway line where I mention that in President Obama's clean power plan, nuclear power is not included as one of the ways that states can use in what they call the building blocks to, to reach these these uh, carbon emission goals. And I have a link in there to a piece from the Institute for Energy Research, and they do great work. And they, they, they have a whole uh, report, really, on how nuclear power is omitted from the options in the Clean Power Plan. And so I'm glad to have with us today Dan Kish, who is the Senior VP for Policy at the Institute for Energy Research. So, Dan, I'm glad to have you with us. Tell us about nuclear and the Clean Power Plan. Yes, Marita, thanks for having me. Um, well, the... Uh, Energy Information Administration took a look at the Clean Power Plan, and one of the things that it found that was very interesting to us was that uh, the uh, EPA's proposal uh, that they'd like the states to accept uh, treats nuclear power in the United States differently than renewable energy sources and uh, tilts the... Uh, uh, tilts the table towards renewable energy sources, even though nuclear, as we know, is uh, carbon-free and uh, provides us a huge amount of our electricity, 20% as a matter of fact. Um, and what they say is that uh, actually if they were treated equally to uh, renewables for purposes of the plan, uh, we would be building a lot more nuclear between now and uh, 2040. So uh, a significant increase in capacity. A lot of people have wondered why if the United States is pushing for carbon dioxide reductions as part of its electricity mix, why nuclear hasn't been more embraced. And uh, if anything, uh, it's been given the stiff arm by the administration at the same time they're talking about the uh, uh, the values in uh, carbon-free uh, carbon sources of energy. Yeah, and nuclear certainly is a, a, a leader. I mean, and carbon-free energy. It's the only real. It's the only real option we have for base load electricity at this point that that's carbon-free. What's What's your take on why the administration has uh, not included that in the plan? Well, frankly, the the administration uh, is very uh, beholden, if you will, to uh, the green left in the United States. And um, the green movement worldwide has been uh, very strongly opposed to nuclear power. Very seldom does a green, so-called green group, uh, 
advocate for more nuclear power despite the fact that it's emission free and as you mentioned it's base load and uh, when done at scale it uh, provides very very affordable electricity um, and so at every turn whether it's the Yucca Mountain disposal waste site or uh, uh, new plants getting under construction or you name it uh, there have been attacks on it and when you've got something as capitally intensive as a nuclear power plant, delays can add up to hundreds of millions and even billions of dollars in additional costs. Uh, and then once the costs go up, they say, gee, it doesn't look like it's economic. That's part of what's driving their uh, push. And there have many, many supporters um, who have actually been uh, political contributing uh, supporters who uh, push for other sorts of energy, wind and solar most notably. I think we all remember uh, some of the failures early on with the administration's push for more uh, wind and solar. Certainly, most notably, Solyndra is kind of the poster child of what I like to call the green energy crony corruption scandal, and Abengoa is another one that I have addressed uh, frequently that's a solar company. Yes, yes, those two uh, are out there. There's actually many, many more, and I'm afraid, Marita, based on everything that we see as time goes by, uh, we're going to have a spate of these, uh, uh, as it turns out. Uh, <laughs> you know, we had robber barons at the beginning of the uh, 20th century, or folks who were called robber barons, but at least they weren't asking the government and taxpayers and ratepayers to subsidize them. Uh, we've got a much more unique situation now where the government and uh, many of these businesses are hand-in-hand in, hand in terms of pushing something that benefits the businesses, which then go on to uh, support and uh, uh, contribute to the politicians. It's, uh, it's not a pretty sight. No, and I've certainly written on that uh, more, I think, than any single other entity out there. And I'm a little bit off topic here, but you mentioned about how these uh, entities are hand-in-hand -hand with the government. And I, you probably, because like me, I don't write, read everything you write. You probably don't read everything I write, though, though we kind of operate in a similar universe. But my column last week was... Um, one of a, I had a lot of fun writing it, and the company Sun Run has just uh, uh, released their IPO, their initial public offering, and within their 234 pages of fine print of their S1 filing, I took, tore it apart, went through it with a fine-tooth comb, and pulled out repeatedly the statement saying, if government policy changes, it could hurt our, uh, our, our model. And basically, I mean, not in these exact words, but they really are saying we're dependent on government programs. Yes, Marita, and actually your piece was great, and it reflects, uh, as your work <laughs> tends to be in general, if I may, uh, the, the, um, the fact of the matter is the many of these businesses are actually creations of the government. Uh, they would like you to believe differently. They run lots of ads. They spend lots of money on lobbying here in Washington, D.C. and throughout the states. But in reality, they, in the absence of government mandates and subsidies, uh, they would fail to exist. So they're not real businesses. They're government-created businesses. And one wonders what happens when the money runs out. Um, and uh, uh, politicians are, are required to make some very, very difficult choices. Uh, when those businesses at that point do run out of the federal money, 
and federal policies that benefit them, their businesses will go under as well, which is why they are uh, to be avoided. Uh, frankly, I'm not giving financial advice here, but I can <laughs> I can tell you, if you think the government's eventually going to run out of other people's money to spend, uh, you probably ought not be in those businesses. Yeah, just think Greece. Yes, exactly. Uh, it, it, it was exactly what I was thinking about. Yeah, and Greece has cut their solar subsidies, and a piece I wrote a few weeks ago had uh, the solar industry saying, we are now preparing for the worst because Greece is going back to coal, which is similar to my Japan story that I wrote on today. What's happening is these countries are realizing that the path that they have been on is not economically sustainable, and they're going back to coal in the case of Greece, but Japan has got uh, putting in seven new coal-fired power plants and ramping up their nuclear, and so for each country... The, the energy mix is different in the United States. We are blessed that we have oil, we have gas, we have coal, we have uranium, we have all kinds of resources. And yet, it, instead of pursuing the economically feasible that other countries are going back to, we are still continually chasing this expensive energy model that countries before us, before us have found is just not sustainable and are turning away from. Uh, that's right, Marita. Uh, uh, Australia just announced that they're doing away with their program for subsidizing windmills uh, because they think it's uh, the administration there in Parliament thinks that it's a crazy thing to do. You see it throughout Europe where governments that are running out of money are having to peel back, uh, whether it's the U.K. or Germany. Uh, the Germans have found themselves in a situation where they pay three times as much as we do for electricity. Imagine your utility bill getting it, tripling it on a monthly basis, and, and thinking about the lifestyle choices people would have to make, especially the least among us. Um, this has been a fad. It continues to be a fad fed by large amounts of uh, government uh, money as well as uh, uh, public relations on behalf of the industry, but but it is unsustainable, just as you said, because the economics don't uh, don't bear out. They simply don't. Which yeah, you why. mentioned large amounts of money spent on the public relations campaign. In the Sunrun S1 filing, they talked about that they have a policy team in place and they continue. They plan to continue ex to expand their policy team, which... I put in my column on that is gentle speak for lobbyists, but it also includes that PR component that's, that's essential uh, for that model. Uh, absolutely. I mean, most businesses start up, they sell a product, and they go out there and they uh, market it. These products are being marketed to governments. Uh, basically, they're pushing, and that, which is why they it's PR and lobbying. And, and again, I, I think you put your finger on it directly. If something isn't sustainable, it's not sustainable. And in the absence of, uh, of something that makes economically uh, reasonable sense, it has to be supported by the government. And when the government will finally come to the conclusion to pull its money out of it, the businesses go belly up, which is why these companies are, in fact, creations of the good. They're, they're uh, socialistic uh, enterprises. I don't know how else to put it, because they rely on the government for their very existence. 
Yeah, so what do you see, Dan? We've just got a couple minutes left uh, of the future nuclear in America. Well, we've got some plants that are uh, uh, under construction in the United States. We've the recent record has not been good. We've been closing plants. Um, uh, the activists have been opposing uh, the relicensing of plants. Uh, I just noticed that Diablo Canyon, the last remaining one in California, is under attack. Um, but we invented the technology of nuclear power. Uh, we, we, we were the people that led the way, and um, it would be a wonderful thing if the United States would recognize the benefits to our economy and to uh, long-term supply, stable and price-stable uh, supplies of electricity that nuclear power could bring. And uh, our only impediment, frankly, has been government activity and uh, government delays in, in, in moving forward. It's good to see that the Japanese are recognizing um, that what they had was a one-off catastrophic accident that was, wasn't related to the base technology, but instead was a horrific earthquake and tsunami that uh, uh, would have wiped out anything in its path. Yeah, my research, I didn't include this in my column, but my research included, I don't recall who it was, unfortunately, because I didn't put it in my column, someone saying that our bigger danger is unrest in the Middle East, which would disrupt their supply of oil and natural gas that they're so dependent on that. He said that was the bigger danger than an earthquake. Uh, absolutely. We have the um, a huge amount of things are caused in the world because of, uh, because of that political instability that comes because of uh, their reliance on that. And the Japanese are extraordinarily reliant on other people for all of their fuel sources, which is why nuclear was such a good thing for them, because it meant they could be producing it at home instead of relying on the Middle East. Well, good. Dan Kish, we're out of time with the Institute for Energy Research. Where can people find uh, the, the column that I'm referencing? Uh, the Institute. Institute for Energy Research org. Okay, great. Thanks for joining us on America's Voice for Energy. We'll be right back. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. This is Georgia author Doug Dahlgren. Join me Fridays at 11 a.m. for a new show here on America's Web Radio. We call it the Prologue. I'll be introducing you to other writers you may not have heard of yet. That's Fridays at 11 a.m. here on America's Web Radio. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. I'm Marita Noon, your host, and this section we're going to be joined by John Manfredo, who is an energy analyst. He writes with oilprice.com and seekingalpha.com, a source I've cited previously in other works that I have done. And this week we're talking about Japan's nuclear reboot and specifically the economics behind why they've gone this direction. And John Manfreda, our guest for this segment, is someone I've never never met before. I read a column of his on oilprice.com titled, Nuclear is Not Dead, Uranium Supply Deficit Could Be on the Horizon. 
and John, because you and I are just meeting today by phone, you you probably wouldn't know that I don't have any background in energy issues. I come from a background in communications. But when I accepted this position as executive director of the Citizens Alliance for Responsible Energy eight, eight and a half years ago now, I cut my teeth on fighting for uranium mining in Grants, New Mexico. And I had never, ever been to a public hearing at all uh, in, my, in my life until I was called upon to, to go and testify uh, for uranium mining in New Mexico. And it was quite an eye-opening experience. So when you're talking about uranium supply deficit could be on the horizon, you know, my ears perk up because of the work I've done. I've also written frequently on uh, the uranium mining issues on, you probably know where I'm talking about, John, is it Virginia? Yeah, I know it's banned uh, in Virginia. There's actually, I forget the name of the company, but one company. Right, uh, Cold Hill is what comes to my mind as the location, but I don't think that's the company name. But I've done some, I've written on that particular issue and why they should, you know, open that up, uh, that area up to uranium mining. Yeah, it's no more dangerous than anything in uh, any other form of energy and mining uh, is essential for a quality of life. Like when U.S. was uh, during the Gilded Age and its rise to wealth, uh, we were the number one copper producer. We were basically the number one producer in almost all materials. Uh, at one point, we were the number one uh, uranium mining uh, producer. Uh, and we certainly, general. and we certainly have plenty of uranium supply uh, in this country at the moment. Oh, yeah, we have a lot of uh, in-pseudo react, in-pseudo production. Uh, some of that's based in uh, Texas and in uh, Wyoming area. A lot of different uh, states around there, there's a lot of uranium uh, mining, too. One company in particular, Energy Fuels, uh, there's Fission Energy. There's a lot of different, there's a lot of good mines in North America. The most famous those in Canada, the Athabasca region. Yes, yes. So uranium is the key fuel uh, to, for nuclear power, and it's kind of interesting. This is a little bit of a tangent on my part. But, you know, the other major sources of energy are all named for their fuel, coal, oil, gas. But nuclear is not named for its fuel. It's Uranium. So there's, you know, when I talk about what people say, what do you do? And I say, I advocate on behalf of energy in the energy industry. And they say, well, you know, what kind? I say, well, oil, gas, coal. And then I say uranium slash nuclear because they're not automatically connected. But um, in your piece, John, uh, on uranium supply deficit could be on the horizon, there was a couple things that I really picked up on that I used in my column that I'd like you to expand upon. Uh, a little bit further, and what I focused on in my column is the economic impact of expensive energy, and you really pointed out in your column about how Japan's expensive fossil fuel imports have impacted their trade surpluses and, in fact, flipped it to a trade deficit. Could you expound on that a little more? Well, yeah, what happened, obviously, everyone knows about uh, Fukushima. Uh, but the thing is, uranium, 30% of their uh, energy was derived from nuclear, which it's very important because in 73, uh, they were hamstrung because of 
well, they really got blindsided because in terms of uh, energy production, they imported mostly fossil fuels, especially from the Middle East, and they were listed on the famous OPEC embargo. And so what happened after, before, after that is they had done a national study, and without nuclear, they couldn't be energy independent on a baseload scale. They realized for liquid fuels like gasoline or driving, they would always be depend, uh, energy dependent. But in terms of uh, baseload, they could be independent based on nuclear because uh, unlike the U.S., they have very low uh, natural resources. In fact, during World War II, uh, Japan, a uh, famous general, I forget the name because I read the book four years ago, but a famous general said, if we can't defeat the U.S. in two years, we don't have the resources to last a long war. So Japan sort of knew they had to win quickly if they were going to win. And after two to three years, they couldn't. In fact, the Kazakazi uh, uh, suicide mission was derived because they didn't have enough fuel to use their plane, so they decided just right, to use it as a weapon. Story. As, as a weapon. So what happened, though, after... Uh, Fukushima is their trade uh, deficits start increasing rapidly because they had to import uh, most of their baseload energy, and it just kept increasing. Over the past two to three months, due to the lower oil prices, though, their trade deficits have decreased, though. In fact, they had one trade surplus because of the low prices, oil prices. But the thing is, and the other thing is, natural gas isn't cheap for them like it is here, because it's done on different regions. We pay, pay a North American uh, natural gas price instead of uh, an Asia region because it's not as uh, liquid and easily transferable. It's done British thermal units and not barrels, and it has to be compressed natural gas. It's done on a uh, regional, more regional market. So... Right, and it's very, it's, it's very expensive to compress or liquefy, whichever way it goes, compress or liquefy the natural gas and then transport it across the ocean uh, to get it to Japan. So, so, but since then, Japan has posted major trade uh, deficits and not surpluses, and it's more harmful to Japan than the U.S. because right now the U.S. has the world reserve currency, so there's always demand for dollars, but Japan... They, up, they, will, they have to produce and equate. I think that will happen to the U.S., but that's a different topic. This is energy. So Japan, they'll eventually have to restart uh, nuclear power despite fierce political opposition. But it's just the only thing uh, they really have. Uh, like some people talk about Saudi Arabia as proof that, you know, solar is the way of the future. Saudi Arabia is just a big desert. You know, it can't be done everywhere. For Saudi Arabia, solar, but they're actually building, uh, I, I believe, 16 nuclear power plants too. So a lot of a lot of countries that are looking to uh, preserve imports and the beauty about nuclear, and the reason why they don't call uranium is most of the cost is done up front. It's building the plant. It's not actually importing the fuel. So once you get the power plant up, in terms of a electric energy consumer. The cost of uranium is not going to affect you like the cost of natural gas would on your utilities or the cost of oil would on your gasoline. So that's the beauty of nuclear is that the uranium price, if it goes to 200 or 100, it's not going to matter. And so it, it makes cheap energy very beneficial. Of course, you know, just low prices in general 
are beneficial because it leaves uh, people, it allows people to save, and savings leads to investment, and investment leads to production, and production is the key to economic growth. Yeah, good. I appreciate that little little uh, connection that you did there. Would you just repeat that for our listeners? Oh, in terms of uh, cheap energy will lead to more savings, and savings leads to investment, and investment leads to production, and production leads to economic growth. And so it leads more money into the pockets. Now, uh, the thing about Japan recently, they had a uh, very uh, a trade surplus. I believe last month. Uh, well, last reporting period, but that, that won't last because no oil company can make money off this price. So prices will inevitably have to rise. Right, and, right. And, all right, we still have a couple minutes. And one last thing I want to make is that Saudi Arabia, uh, right now, everyone talks about Saudi wanting to lower prices, but they can't do this for very long because 90% of their government revenue is done by oil exports and they're increasing social programs and spending, uh, government spending, and they invaded, I forget, another country, but uh, I forget one of the neighboring countries. I forget the exact one, but a couple of months ago. And if they're going to do that, they're going to need higher prices. So I don't believe the low oil prices will last. And so Japan will, that will bring, that will speed up the nuclear reactor restart for them. So uh, cheap energy is beneficial, uh, the 80s and 90s. that was We had cheap energy, and that was the period of growth. Uh, it's no coincidence in the 70s when we had higher energy costs. The, the market didn't do that well. The economy, in fact, the misery index was uh, created in the 70s because it was so miserable. Uh, so higher energy cost means higher cost for business, higher cost for homes, utilities, and that's pretty much uh, what it is. So just case in point, the U.S., uh, in closing, there's still a minute or two. The U.S. has yeah. vast amounts of natural resources. They could be energy independent, I think, in two or three years if they really wanted to. Yeah, I believe that we're already what I like to call North American energy independent, or at least we have the capability uh, of being North America with, with, with Canada, the United States, and Mexico, the amount of resources that are available. Uh, if it wasn't for um, shipping conveniences and some other things, I think we could, we could tell the Middle East that, you know, they can take a hike. Yeah, well, Canada's the U.S.'s largest uh, oil importer, and the thing is, the problem is China, they're, no, they're not idiots, but uh, they're trying to do everything they can to get uh, access to Canadian markets. And if we still have people, these, uh, I guess, parasites, but I don't want to be that mean, but detriments <laughs> blocking stuff like Keystone Pipeline and everything, Canada might end up divorcing America and, well, I guess not marry, but at least date China. I love that saying. Yeah, uh, yeah. And and you don't see yeah, well, you know, the people like you and me who follow this stuff, John, we know that, you know, Canada has been extremely patient over the Keystone Pipeline, and China is saying, no, bring it over here, bring it over here, we want your oil. Yeah, so it's just not, you know, I, I'm worried that Canada want one, one day, they're very patient, but just throw in the towel and, uh, say, and might ship it to oil, but... They, they've elected in Alberta very, uh, I guess, well, I guess the term's progressive, but they, they elected 
and they're going after the oil industry, so who knows what's going to happen there. Uh, I don't think – they're not like the U.S., though. I think they know who spreads their butter, so I don't think they're going to go after it like they say. But, uh, yeah, I think they'll have a hard time going after it that much, but I, I haven't followed what's happened in the politics there. But I do know, as you said, they have a, elected a less oil-friendly government. Yeah. So I think, uh, just, I guess in closing, uh, yeah, in closing, I just want to, you know, we could be North American energy independent with uranium, nuclear, natural gas, oil. Uh, we could do that now, I think, if they wanted to, and they allowed pipelines. Uh, the most ironic thing is TransCanada actually proposed another pipeline to cross U.S. and Canada, uh, but this time shipping stuff from U.S. to Canada, which... I think sort of ironic uh, that they still, you know, they wouldn't look at other opportunities. So that's just the main thing about the economics and the picture right now. Great. Well, John Manfreda, I appreciate your time with me today on America's Voice for Energy. I encourage our listeners to look you up on oilprice.com, and specifically today we've been talking about your piece titled, Nuclear is Not Dead, Uranium Supply Could Be on the Horizon. We'll be right back. My name is Dr. Jeff Terry from Mobile, Alabama. I love taking care of my patients and not computers. That is why I need your help. On October 1st, the government will mandate that I implement the new ICD-10 coding system, and if not able to do so, then I will be put out of business and my patients will have to find a new physician. Please call and write your congressmen and senators today and tell them no to ICD-10. Tell them physicians need a grace period in order to concentrate on you, the patient, and not the computer. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome to our final segment of America's Voice for Energy. Today we've been talking about Japan's nuclear restart. But as I say in my column, the lesson here is less about nuclear power and more about the need for energy that is cost-effective, reliable, and secure. The lesson that Japan learned from shutting down their nuclear power and importing what is for them expensive fossil fuels because they need to be imported and transported, they learned that their economy suffered as a result of using more expensive energy. And when I think of energy and the economy, I can't help but turn to my friend Tim Snyder, energy economist with Pro Petroleum and also a consultant with energy or agri-energy uh, solutions, is it, Tim? I'm sorry. And that's correct. Agri-Energy Solutions. Got it right. Okay. Agri-Energy Solutions. So Tim's kind of my go-to guy when I think of energy and the economy. So Tim, welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. Great to have you with me again. Thanks, Marita. Thanks for having me. 
So, Tim, you read my column on uh, the situation in Japan and their nuclear restart. And, you know, what do you see that's the lessons that we can take away from that in energy policy in America? I think the most important thing, the most important takeaway from this is that any policy of, I guess the word might be exclusion, in other words, a policy that says, only my energy and everybody else's is not good, is a bad policy. Nuclear energy by itself in a country like Japan that sits on the edge of the Pacific Rim, eh, I'm not sure how much of a good idea that is. But it is something that they have to do from an economic standpoint and work to engineers, uh, you know, uh, reactors and those kinds of things that can um, sustain uh, an earthquake, or even now they think about tsunamis and those kinds of things. I look in the United States, and I look at you know uh, an energy economy that we have that was primarily built on fossil fuels and coal, and those are very important for us here in the United States. It's what modernized uh, the, the the current world that we live in, and there is room for renewables, there is room for nuclear, there's room for all of the above. I, I kind of uh, got tickled at, at uh, uh, Scott Walker, who was running for president, the governor of uh, Wisconsin, and one of the things that he said was, you know, he has to support, him, and I, and I kind of believe this, you got to support an all-of-the-above kind of concept and not to exclude the other. And that's probably been one of the biggest problems that we've had here in the United States is it's, you know, my my dad's better than your dad kind of concept. Yeah, and uh, we, we've been pushing one thing to, as you said, to the exclusion of the other. Right. So uh, it, it's it's a change that I see that needs to be made in America. Yeah, I, I think that's what it is. And, you know, it's kind of funny, Marita, not that, that I wanted to bring, you know, any of my experience into this, but I can tell you back in, oh, gosh, 19, well, let's see, 2000, uh, three when we got 2004 when we got the first permit for a um, an ethanol plant in the state of Texas, I had the support of the energy companies, the fossil fuel companies, the oil companies. Um, I had the support of the cattle feeders. I had support of everybody around, you know, uh, our little microcosm for one reason. That's because it made economic sense, and that's what we're talking about with regards to Japan. Is it right economic? sense for them in their nuclear program. Yeah, because for them, they don't have a lot of uh, natural resources, where we in America are in a whole different place. In our first segment, I talked with Jay Lair from the Heartland Institute, and he, he's written a book uh, recently, a new book, strictly on nuclear power, and uh, he's a real expert on the topic, but he, he said that he doesn't see that nuclear power is ever really going to have a renaissance in America because of our abundant, cheap natural gas. And because natural gas is so cost-effective, he said that he doesn't see that nuclear, because, it, because nuclear is expensive to build, it's cheap to run, but a nuclear power plant is very um, expensive to build, um, he said he doesn't see that we're really going to have a renaissance, a nuclear renaissance in America uh, because we have 
other options that are more economic. And while I've been talking, I pulled up his, the title of his book, and it's from the uh, Wiley series on energy, the Nuclear Energy Encyclopedia, Science, Technology, and Applications. And he was my guest in the first segment. Um, would you agree with his observation or his thesis that uh, nuclear power is not going to have a renaissance in America? Completely agree. I think it's, it's, we're, we have a bit of a conundrum here, and that is you know, we can actually develop all forms of energy. If we really want to be the energy-independent uh, nation that we, that we talk about, yeah, we could develop all of it. But bottom line, Marita, it's important to understand dollars and cents. And if it costs too much to build a plant, it's just like the conversations we've had in, in weeks past uh, about cellulosic ethanol and those kinds of things. If it costs too much to do it, then the economics have to drive your decision. Yeah, and that, that's what we're seeing. So, you know, what, I, I'm hopeful that in America our energy policies uh, will be driving towards uh, an economic, but, you know, not under this, not under this president, I'm afraid. Well, I'm, it, not under a lot of presidents, I'm afraid. I, this, is, this, this is the problem that I see, and that is economics and policy issues um, should be mutually exclusive. Uh, they're not. Uh, you know what we? Yeah, it's very political. Yeah, we politicized everything, and now you know we we try to tell people that that you know uh, uh, the mercury that is released in from a from a, a coal fired plant is going to kill X number of babies. I mean, I hate to be graphic about that, but we've taken it from the sublime to the ridiculous, and. You know, what we've done is we've politicized things. We've demonized certain things. We've tried to demonize fossil fuels to the point where, you know, you can, you got to be careful what you ask for. Be careful what you wish for because at some point we may have to live on just solar and wind. And I'm not sure that that's a world uh, or United States that I'm going to be happy to live in. Yeah, well, I hope that we don't. I hope that we don't come to that. But that's that is certainly uh, the direction the clean power plan is pushing us. And I talked with Dan Kish from the Institute for Energy Research in uh, the second segment, and Dan, they, the Institute for Energy Research, put together a report um, which I had not been aware of. I I, I found it in doing my research for my column, and I was able to tag in a link to it at the very end. But their, their report uh, points out that the clean power plan, you know, which is the big uh, electricity generation regulations that are coming down the pike, and I know you do more liquid fuels than electricity, but the, the clean power plan, I was shocked to discover that the clean power plan does not allow for, um, it does not allow for new nuclear as one of the options to meet their, their goals of reducing greenhouse gases. Nuclear is not even an option. So when you say, you know, I, a world of all solar and wind is not maybe one you want to live in, but that's, that's definitely the direction that, that, the policies are headed in this country. Well, they are, and that's unfortunately that it's almost more policies of the federal government than it is the elected government. And you know, you know, you, we need to we need to be very careful how we 
mess with this critical balance that we have in energy because energy is our lifeblood. It is our currency. I talk about fossil fuels, primarily crude oil, being the actual currency that, that pumps through the veins of the entire world uh, economic system. And if you tinker with that, um, it, you know, you could, you could cause an imbalance that could, that could, from an economic standpoint, collapse countries, um, ruin economies, and, uh, you know, it's, Well, it's, and that's, that's the lesson from Japan. That's the lesson that we see from this current Japan story, because their population in Japan, about 60% of their population is opposed to this nuclear restart, at least according to my research. Uh, that, but yet, economically, they find they have no real options but to go this direction. And, you know, when we talk about energy and the economy being so intricately connected, their, their factories, uh, their businesses are complaining about the increased cost and say, you know, it's harder and harder to run a business, to run a factory in particular. I, I think we average consumers out there, uh, myself included, don't have a concept of how much uh, how much energy it takes in, to manufacture goods that you know fuel the economy. Yeah, that's the whole point. I mean, energy runs an economy. Okay, Can, manufacturing doesn't run the economy. Energy runs the economy. Um, and because energy runs manufacturing. Because energy runs manufacturing, plain and simple, and it runs transportation. And so you right. have those, you know, you look at those two factors, and you have to understand, you, you know, you look at Japan and, and uh, you know, our good friend uh, Baron Lucas, who talks about this all the time, the, the aging demographics and the situation that they have in Japan, they've got an aging population. That's a country that's in trouble, and I, they need their nuclear energy because they cannot afford to continue to bring in other fossil fuels from other countries or you know, and you know the, the the terrible relationship that there has been throughout the years between Japan and the Koreas and and even uh, China. You know, China is a, a nation that could possibly export, you know, to that country. That you know, you, that, you know, that's not going to happen. So they're stuck. Yeah, they are, they are stuck, and that's. But you know, the message I think in my column as we close up this show today, I believe is that. Well, Japan is stuck, and they really are stuck. And so nuclear is the best option for them. And we in the United States are building some new nuclear reactors that are third-generation technology. They're safer and more cost-effective. But there's so much regulation on them and so much legal hurdles that it increases the cost. But we're not stuck on nuclear. Now, in some places, some regions of the country, nuclear might be the best option. But, you know, I often like to go back to the Four Corners Power Plant in New Mexico, uh, where there's a coal mine right at the power plant. And that coal mine, that coal is stranded. There's not a rail line to get it out of there. And so that coal is there to feed that plant. That's why the plant was built there. Sure. So to shut down that plant, which the EPA is requiring shutting down half of the, the plant, is a bad choice for there because the coal is right there and they've cleaned it up. The uh, American Lung Association reports have shown the air there is some of the cleanest in the country. But there's different, you got to look at each uh, locale and look at what's best for that, 
the most economic way to generate energy for that region. In some places, it may be nuclear, such as the northwest of this country. We're about out of time. Tim, what's your closing comment? Yeah, the, the only comment I have about that is that not only is that bad for New Mexico and bad for that local area where that plant is in New Mexico, but it's bad for the U.S. And, you know, these policies, these restrictive policies that we're dealing with with regards to alternative fuels other than fossil, primary fossil fuels, um, you got to have an inclusive uh, you got to have an inclusive policy, and it's not something that's exclusive but inclusive and uh, doesn't work to destroy the value of our fossil fuels, which, once again, is the lifeblood of America. Marita, thanks for having me this morning. Yep, we're out of time. This has been America's Voice for Energy on America's Web Radio. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.